the government wants to make sure that they can project their monetary policy, they can set interest rates, they can kind of do some of these things. We don't change any of that. We just inherit from whatever that policy is, but we're like driving innovation at the fundamental kind of the form factor, as it were, like credit cards and debit cards were like the form factor of money. And then like tap to pay, that's a form factor of money. Stable coins are like a new form factor of money. So it's not really competitive with what the government does. Yes, there is talk of the government looking at doing some of this themselves. I think it's really unlikely that you'll see that as a model in the United States. This episode of Over the Wall, I interviewed Jeremy Allaire, the CEO of Circle. If you don't know Circle, it's one of the major crypto companies in providing what they call stablecoin, or it's called USDC. But that's not what just makes him amazing. He is a serial entrepreneur. I remember I used this software back in the early 90s called Cold Fusion. If you're building websites, you want to connect it to a database, Cold Fusion was one of the first technologies to do that in the early 90s. And he just went on to that, sold his company to Macromedia, found another company called Brightcove, just an amazingly great entrepreneur. And he's just really transitioned into the Web3 world and crypto and is dominating there right now, about to go public. And so check out this episode. You'll really enjoy it. Just love talking to Jeremy. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Over the Wall. Today, I'm here with Jeremy Allaire, who's co-founder and chairman and CEO of Circle. But beyond that, he's been an amazing entrepreneur. Interesting enough, we kind of grew up in the same time frame in the early 90s in the internet, and he invented a company called Cold Fusion, which was the original database connector. If you're using databases, you needed his technology between a web interface and a database. And then he went Macromedia, Brightcove. So just perfect for this show. And obviously, I've gotten more into about crypto and all that. So we'll touch all that. So Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. Really a pleasure to be here with you. So I have a funny story, Jeremy. You had a product that it was Cold Fusion. You had this forums product yes. that you invented. I took that product and I sort of private labeled it, shall we say. And I, was, I hosted it. And my first customer was Xerox. And I was trying to build a whole community around their customers yeah. using that product. And what happened was we got up and running. And very quickly, the customers were saying, you suck, Xerox. And, you su-, and they were just <laughs> bitching. Transparency is a problem. It, it was, and, and, but, but we had this little chat room. We had one dedicated yeah. form that was for t- customer support. And mm-hmm. they used that. And Xerox said, I want that. And we ended up building the whole company around <laughs> the idea of your one piece of your product. And then we built our own services. But it was $250,000. That was our first customer. Amazing. It kept us alive. And it funded us into building what is today live person. So I have to thank you for everything you've done. All right. That's awesome. It, it's it's really funny because the genesis of Cold Fusion itself was actually, I was trying to, I, I was like doing web app development when it was really, really hard. It was like pre, pre-Cold Fusion. Um, and in late 93, 94, and I was super inspired about the idea of interactivity. How could you actually build community um, and online services were about this sort of content community convergence and, and, and basically kept building all these different ideas for how to build threaded messaging and other things. And, and so uh, the genesis of Cold Fusion was basically community and messaging originally. And then Cold Fusion was very general purpose. And then we we're like, well, the killer app is going to be this. So we built the forums product 
and and yeah. there you go. Um, that's that's an awesome connection. Yeah, yeah. We, we have the same feeling. My thing was about community. Like I, I was going to websites and there was nobody on them. I'm like, right. got to be able to chat. But if it wasn't for you guys, I remember we created it as a hosted model. Yeah. Because if we gave them the software, right, they would have known it was yours. So we actually hosted, and that's how the first hosted software started. We started the SaaS just out of, we didn't want right. them to see your stuff. So we're like, right. okay, it's ours. That's how we got started. So That was the uh, application service providers, right? That was exactly, ASPs. ASPs, yeah, ASPs, right. So how did you get in? By the way, why did you get into the internet? Like we all got there, we were the early pioneers. How'd you make your way to it? What'd you see? So a couple things. I think the first was, um, you know, I was just, I was, um, my brother and I both actually, you know, we were lucky that like our dad bought an Apple II computer in 1982 and just was, you know, exposed to the PC revolution and eventually to modems and, and stuff like that. But I got really lucky, which is that my college roommate had a job on campus at my college working for the, the information services IS uh, department. And as a result of that, he got a T1 internet connection into our dorm room. Um, and, you know, in, and this was in 1990. So it was really early. Wow. Yeah, really, really early. And I was studying kind of like political science, philosophy, economics, not, I don't have a computer science background at all. And, and basically just like went down the rabbit hole in 1990, 91, and basically like found that I could connect with and communicate with people around the world and I was studying the collapse of the former Soviet Union, which is actually quite a relevant thing right now. There were a lot of research institutions actually in Russia and in the former Soviet states that were connected to the internet because there were like these collaborations between universities. So when the, the Soviet Union was collapsing and kind of there were these revolutions happening in all these you know, former Soviet states, I was actually getting citizen journalism from people who were in these places who were like encoding images in like these multi-part encoded messages and putting them up on Usenet forums and then on listservs and communicating. And it was just one of these things where I was like, holy shit, like this is an open network that is, there's no intermediaries. Anyone can connect to this thing. I'm witnessing things and connecting and communicating with people that it, just in a way that was inconceivable in the world of media and communications. And, and, and I was like, this is going to change the world. So I just became obsessed. And so I basically made it the focus of all of my studies and everything else. And, and so I just got, I got deeply into it and, and studied the technology really closely. And, and a lot of the fundamental, what I think of as the DNA of the internet, which is open networks, permissionless innovation, open source, open IP, decentralization, all these things were like fundamental. I was like a very early member of the EFF. Bef you know, and, and, and so it was just like very into that very early on. And so that's kind of how I got into it in 1990. And, and then when I graduated college in 93, I was like, this is all I want to do. I, my degrees are useless. I just want to, I want to build on the internet. And that was even before the web. Right. Um, and then the web just like kind of lit it on fire. So what do you think? Like, you know, obviously 95, I started the company. I had another company before doing digital video for kiosks on college campuses. And then I saw the internet. And I'm like, wow, we can bring this to websites in college and college dorms. And we had advertising on it. And so I pivoted, same thing. I'm like, oh my God, it's an open network. You can get it from anywhere. I spoke to Ira Magaziner. If you remember, Ira worked for Clinton. And I, a couple yeah. of years ago, I met with him and we talked about like 
keeping the internet open. Yes. And even they knew that there would be problems with data and you know privacy. Yeah. He basically went opted for openness over government, heavy-handed government. So we ended up in a very weird place. I think if you were in it like I was early, you didn't think it would end up with a couple of big giant companies yeah. and this data control. What's your you know, give yeah. me your perspective. If you can go back to yourself then and, and then what what you see now, connect the dots for me. It's it's really fascinating because I think um in, in in some ways, the internet as it exists today is still something that you know anyone can connect to, anyone can communicate, anyone can publish. Um, you know, it, it's based on open protocols, it's based on open software, and that's really powerful. So, like, I I feel like the underlying fundamentals are still you know inherit from that DNA basically. And I think the Web 1 excitement was the sort of anyone can connect and publish on, on this network. And a lot of the work in the first generation, right, was kind of people putting information out. And then Web 2 was like, hey, you know, everyone can be an author. Everyone can communicate. Everyone, this has got, you know, social, social connectivity. Community, uh, yeah. Community, yeah. right. And it was kind of like corresponded to, you know, like, the bandwidth got bigger, right? You had broadband. And so with broadband, it made two-way interactivity, two-way content more viable. And, and, you know, as we, as we all remember, right, the, the, you know, the read, write web and blogging and Twitter and, you know, all this stuff and RSS feeds and, you know, everything that kind of came out, which was in the, in the nucleus of web 2.0, was all about democratizing access. It was all about openness and enabling that. And I think it was hard. It was hard to see that the architectures that would win would be the ones essentially that kind of aggregated the most users and convenience and centralized infrastructure to make things kind of as high performance as possible, as seamless as possible. It was hard to see that. And so yeah, we've ended up with these massively consolidated platforms. But I still feel like even with that, with whatever you want to, you know, Facebook or Apple or Google or or what have you, you know, it's still built on an open architecture. It's still built on an environment where there's permissionless innovation. And, you know, I don't think it's like the world's over. It's all this consolidated companies. I, I do, I do still feel like there's still a lot there. And one can argue like the internet itself is its own kind of organism, and it's like the, these humans that are mediating this organism and evolving it. And, and in some ways, like crypto infrastructure is just a outgrowth of that organism sort of saying, I need to react to data sovereignty. I need to react to privacy. I need to react to um, the security threats. I need to make this a more resilient infrastructure for economic activity to, to bind the world in more ways. It's like the Internet's birthing its next layer organically and there's humans obviously who are who are channeling that but i I do see it as a kind of a a little bit of the kind of pendulum swing or the dialectic you know to use marxism a little bit of a dialectic at work here the internet's kind of got its own dialectic going on and and i think crypto infrastructure is part of that and a reaction to kind of 
the maybe straying off of some of the fundamental uh, uh, ethos behind Web 1.0, which excited so many of us. And what do you think? Like, I've also related to like the vision we had in the 90s of the internet being open, and then it kind of became centralized power. And then obviously the birth of Bitcoin happens during the financial crisis, like right in there. Yeah. And then you know, I often think there's this connect, there's this connectivity between the centralization of power. That has yeah. happened, whether it's in you know big banks or you know big, big tech. tech or big big government, big government right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it feels like like these things get birthed, like you said, yeah, like organisms out of a need for humans to yeah. progress. Yeah. And I don't. How do you tie? I kind of tie that. Something happened during the financial crisis that also with the openness, like something was all brewing to get yeah. us to Web3, and we'll talk about Web3 and stuff. What, yeah. what, do you, what do you see? I definitely see that. I mean, as I think um, I mentioned, right, my background was in, like, political economy. And so I've always looked at everything, all of this stuff, through the lens of sort of social, political, and economic institutions. And I've always thought of the Internet as kind of a birthing a new global infrastructure for social, political, and economic institutions. And in many ways, you know, the internet became this open global infrastructure. Everyone's connected, no nation state boundaries, free flow of information, free flow of commerce, corresponded obviously very much to this massive acceleration in globalization, of division of labor, all of these kinds of things, this high velocity, you know, barriers coming down, the Soviet Union coming down, China opening up. All these things, they were actually all highly correlated. And and there was a sense of, you know, inevitability to that happening. And I, I think, like, at least the billions of humans that participate in that, because not every human participates in that experience, but for the, I don't know how many it is now, maybe it's 4 billion or 5 yeah. billion yeah. humans that, that are on this network, right? They're kind of like, no, 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 I'm part of this. Yes, I'm, I, I live in India, or yes, I live in Argentina, or yes, I live in, in Indonesia or the United States or wherever, but I'm, I'm part of this. And I think there is a way in which that fuels kind of the birthing of these new global mechanisms. Uh, you know, at least for me, and if you look at the, the intensity of the, the movement, I call it the money movement, which is the name of my podcast as well, but um, the intensity of the movement behind crypto it's channeling that, right? It's channeling a sense that there's an economic system that can be built of the internet, by the internet, you know, for the internet, that is not tied to my one country. And I think there's a sense from the people who are the creators that are working on this, whether it was Satoshi and that crew, yeah. or all the other stuff that has come from this kind of Cambrian explosion, right? There is this sense of we're operating at a higher order and we're building a new layer of both social, political, economic institutions on the internet. And in some ways, the internet was not capable of providing the mechanisms that were needed for organization, governance, and economic value exchange. Like the, there was no native capability of the internet to do those things. So you had to, everything was like outsourced to the legacy financial system, the jurisprudence system, the multinational jurisprudence system. It's all sort of exists offline. And 
you know, that that's what kind of got me into crypto as well was like, oh, actually, you can actually kind of break down the building blocks of society and and, and policy and organization, and economic activity, you can break those down and actually codify them literally in mechanism that is enforced on the internet. And so it is, to me, this is just like a response to that and, and building of that. The V1, I think people, a lot of times the stories that are told about crypto and now Web3 is the V1 of it, which is the sovereign individual. Almost like I don't need to have fiat government money. I can, uh-huh. I can hide it. The John McAfee, you know, rest sure. soul, but like that, <laughs> you know, like that, uh-huh. that personality, like, and I'm, I, I'm not paying taxes and everything like that. And, and I feel like then it's become more of what I call the social sovereign, which is, it's about communities of people coming together to be in these decentralized organizations to build yeah. something for the betterment of, yeah. you know, through community, I gain more sovereignty. Like, by yeah. being part of a community, I can I can gain sovereignty over my finances or whatever. But it's an interesting. There's such a focus on the the sovereign individual for some reason. Yeah. I don't know, you know, and I'm not, you know, it's not. It's, it's an evolution, obviously. It is right, and this and the cypherpunks were anarcho in nature, and a lot of the early they fought against the commercialization of the internet. And as as I mentioned, I think I was part of EFF right early on. Yeah. Got to know Mitch Kapoor. Got Mitch to know Kapoor, yeah. some of this. And I think like even within the EFF, there was like this division of the cypherpunks who were like, "This is a hundred percent about hardcore individual liberty," and the people who were more like, "This is a commons, and we need to have privacy and we need individuality, but we also need the commons." And Tim O'Reilly himself, right, who was a, a big figure in the in some of the popularization of the early internet, was always thinking about the social cohesion. But you see that expressed, you know, in crypto today. It's not, it's not like a unidimensional thing. It's not there's not like one voice speaking on this stuff. And yeah, I mean, it's even like the distinction between like the the hardcore privacy coin type stuff, which is you know one could argue is was part of the origin of Bitcoin, and someone like Vitalik who's clearly thinking about... The, the Ethereum founder, if you don't know. Yeah, the Ethereum, Ethereum founder, Vitalik. One of the founders, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the kind of principal agent there. Um, yeah. You know, thinking about how we're building out infrastructure for society and and collective engagement and activity and governance and, like, how you how do you do those things, which is not just about the sovereign individual. It's about the yeah, social sovereigns, I call, like, connectivity. I don't know if people truly understand if they step back like about, let's take Bitcoin. Not everyone knows about Ethereum, but let's say Bitcoin. Bitcoin is probably one of the biggest brands on earth. They don't have a CEO. They don't have a marketing department. <laughs> they have no, there's no they and there's no founder. No they. There's no they. Well, it's just like saying, you know, TCPIP. Who is TCPIP? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Right. It's, it's, and it's, and it's, a, it's a trillion dollar, whatever is market cap. And yet it doesn't, it doesn't have any thing it's got no what we're used to these like very hierarchical structures of company and organization like how could this even happen without a marketing department and build a brand i mean it's it's crazy and i don't know if people truly understand that it's the first time in history in human that i know of maybe you, you've studied there, that that's happened on that scale yeah well like there, there's a lot going on there right like you know linux right had linus torvald but but he's like, no, 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 it's not me. This is just this open source thing. And Linux is this thing and anyone can fork it and anyone can do this and, and so on. And Bitcoin's a little bit like that yeah. as well. And 
you know, we, we do have examples of that, which are like the World Wide Web, right? The web, you know, HTML, HTTP. You know, there were some early people who wrote the specs and build the reference implementations. And then a whole bunch of people just kept iterating on it. And then people said, okay, let's keep evolving the spec. And, you know, the spec is just an open spec. And then there's like all these implementations of it. And like, but the, the web is like something like, again, like, Everyone knows what the web is, but there's no company. You can't say like the World Wide Web Consortium controls the web. They, they do. Right. It's just a way to convene people to evolve the spec. And But there was no native token, so to speak, for the World Wide Web. And so the digital commodity piece of it was missing. But now we have fat protocols, right? We have protocols like that have digital commodity that is a liquid tradable monetizable thing. And, and so that, that's definitely evolved. But I've always looked at things like these crypto networks and blockchains as it's a real evolution in public protocols on the internet. These are protocols that aren't just for data and information, they're protocols for economic activity. Um, and, uh, and so they have a very, very different structure to them. So why do you think like the, the web one and two is really about media and a media model? It's about, I'm targeting you, there's advertising and right. there's a, right. And somehow, it's everything on web three is, is a transaction, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the, like the like the transaction became the like, you know, if I look at that, like making a transaction, whether it's one cent, $1 or multi-million dollar, yeah. why do you think that happened? You know, why was that birthed, you know, that model and not yeah. just a continuation of what we have right now, which is you yeah. know, an advertising model and based on data. Well, I mean, in some ways, right. As, as I was sort of alluding to before, right. The internet, needed um, a, a way for the entities that interact on the internet, whether it be people or households or firms, but just a way for the entities on the internet to have um, kind of trust minimized ways to transact and to exchange value and to make economic decisions. And, and that didn't exist on the internet itself. Again, you had to go off the internet to do those things. And so in some ways it was just, you know, the, the evolution of the internet from being an information and communication system to being a, an economic system. And so when you say you want the internet to be an economic system, then you, well, what are the building blocks that you have to have in order to do that? Um, and they're not just about transactions. It's, you know, like I can instantiate a, a DAO and a DAO doesn't necessarily, it's not about transactions, but it, it is about participation, right? It's those communities, right? Like that we got inspired about, yeah. but, but now there's actually like real trust minimized, um, decentralized ability to make decisions, uh, to actually make decisions. You still might use a, 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 a separate, you know, discord or whatever for communications. sounds like you've got some ideas for. Yeah. I'm working ways. on something there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> other, other, other ways to evolve. And a lot of people, I think, right. That's, it makes a lot of sense to these layers. Right. But I think it's just kind of bringing to the internet things that you had, you couldn't do on the internet unless you sort of put your faith in one company uh, and trusted that one company and, and ran it through something where you had to trust them and their infrastructure. And so, um, again, it's just, I think in some ways, like a natural outgrowth of what the internet wants to be, which is to be a fabric for social and economic activity that is global in nature. Um, and, you know, I think like, like the example you gave of, you know, Bitcoin's this 
brand that everyone knows. There's no company. It's this huge trillion dollar thing. I think that you know there will be you know DAOs that you know maybe even as soon as like two or three years from now are creating products and delivering services and delivering economic value bigger than some of the biggest public companies in the world. And, yeah. and like that just seems inevitable. It just seems inevitable because it is this way for work and value exchange to be organized and, um, and, and it can be done entirely enforceable in software on the internet. And I think it'll just happen, right? I mean, Axie Infinity is sort of a kind of an example of something like that within this play to earn gaming yeah. concept. But I, I actually think, you know, DAOs that produce things that actually organize labor and capital and produce things. Um, yes. It's going to be really interesting. Now we have DAOs that form to make investments together or yep. to curate content together. But I think produce things, actually. And, and you know, there, there are, you know, still going to be the interface layer between, like, enforceable contracts and, you know, you know that kind of thing. But I, I actually think we'll, we'll, we'll break through those issues. So if, if for those who don't know what a DAO is, it means distributed autonomous organization, which is think of it like there's a – a structure for how community gets together, makes decisions, and creates value in the world, not like a corporation, but it's basically a group of individuals. So no one person has power under the scenario, but they can build things together. You can build a company around it. You can launch yeah. a product around it. People are investing together and buying assets, digital assets together using this structure. And it does have some legal boundaries to it. There are, you, so, But for those out there, it's, it's kind of the next form of company. What if everyone in the company owned the company? Yeah. What if everyone in the company makes decisions through collective, you know, conversations yeah. and decision making versus hierarchical CEO and all that down? Yeah, I think that's right. Like there's one view, which is this is the truly decentralized, more collective based kind of thing. What I think what's interesting about the technology, though, is it's the first time we have material where there can be really rapid iteration and experimentation in models of economic and, and decision-making organization. And so I think you're going to end up seeing a ton of different models. You're going to see very hierarchical models. You're going to see very democratic, extreme democratic models. You're going to see a lot of experimentation. And, you know, I, I know, and you know, right, from running companies, right, if everyone in the company was like making, contributing and voting on everything that the company did, it would be a disaster. Um, it, it just, you wouldn't get anything done. Right. Yeah. Unless you tokenize it. The interesting thing is that what makes it holacracy, which, you know, I'm one yeah. of the board, one of my board members is one of the original guys at Zappos, Fred Moser. He started it with Tony Shea. And they tried holacracy over there, which is basically people not having titles or hierarchy. Right. And it, it's a struggle, or it was. Yeah. Where if you tokenize, you put the rewards with the work mm -hmm. and, you, and you can have someone get value for that, like at the point. Yeah like mining a Bitcoin, obviously. Right. It's an interesting, that's what we were missing on the flat structure is that the reward yeah. still came from my boss yeah. and the company and there's a bonus pool. And that, if yeah. that changed, changed that dynamic, it could, could work. You know? Yeah, there's lots of, so it's experimentation and iteration on organizational and decision-making forms and incentive mechanisms. So it's like a really interesting new material to work with. Um, and, um, um, you know, it was, it was interesting. I read a piece yesterday um, there was a, a, a guy who writes in a daily newsletter, Byron Gilson, and he was writing about, you know, kind of how when Web 2 emerged, like 1998, and people were talking about all the things that you could do with the Internet and then what happened with Web 2, um, 
you know, kind of all those things were happening in some way back in 1998. It's just they weren't very good. Um, and 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 then then it took infrastructure upgrades, other things, and eventually all those things happened. And he was sort of saying, you know, probably with Web3, most of the things that are going to happen are already happening. It's just that they're not that good yet. Um, so take like the example of decentralized messaging, right? There are things, but they're just not very good. And DAOs as a, okay, there's going to be huge innovation in how work and capital and organizations happen. It's happening now. It's just not very good. Um, and so I, I think it's interesting just as a perspective to say, you know, you know, I, I mean, I remember in the early days of the internet, all these ideas about, you know, everything that was going to become possible. And, and then it just takes a while um, for it to, to really, really mature. I mean, we're interested of we're looking at because the messaging world, like we're looking at how do we bring messaging? Messaging is obviously used as a cornerstone of this whole thing. You're, but you're basically using Web2 technology, a website yeah. to have to do the transactions or you're in a right. DeFi protocol. And then you go to Discord or yeah. something else to communicate. And I've been thinking about can we make basic infrastructure, a messaging infrastructure that runs yeah. the actual commerce yeah. Right. Not that it's running on the side. Yeah. So I, you know, because I think these two, for some reason, have a hand in hand. I don't know what you yeah. think of that, but I, I, I totally agree. And you know, I, I got excited about kind of third generation blockchains because of their performance characteristics, things like Solana and and others, yeah. which Polkadot, yeah, yeah, Polkadot, and and where you could sort of say, hey, the transaction throughput gets to a point where you could actually start to build higher, higher level, you know, kind of abstractions around things like messaging. And, and there've been attempts to do, to do that on some of those protocols. Again, we're like, this is like, you know, when you're trying to do streaming video over ISDN, which was like the precursor to real broadband. And, and so we're pushing the physics here a little bit on what's possible, yeah. but you can clearly see that the physics are going to become possible. Let's turn to like the, the, the company at hand. Yeah. So, for those once again who starting out on crypto and stuff, there's stuff like Bitcoin, but it trades and the the price goes up up and down every day. So using that as a way to uh, do commerce, pay for something uh, has its challenges. Also has tax implications if you get a gain and you pay for something, right? It's it's like you're using stock to buy something. Right. So you come up with this idea of what we call stable coin, the idea that something should be, be pegged to the dollar, the euro, whatever. In this case, the dollar, and and you're it's called USDC. How much? How much is out there right now? Have been yeah. minted of USDC. Yeah. So there's currently over 52 billion USDC in circulation. Um, there's been I don't know the total number is probably 130 billion minted, but then there's a lot redeemed. So people mint and redeem, um, and and um, and that's that's actually why it always stays worth a dollar is because you know when we mint a USDC digital currency unit, it's backed by a full dollar asset. And when you want to come back and take that USDC digital currency unit and, and, and get, get a, uh, uh, what I call an ACH dollar or a SWIFT dollar, you can go and get an ACH dollar or a SWIFT dollar, which are the sort of legacy electronic money systems. You can get them back into that. But, um, you know, just like, you know, you used to be able to rip your CDs into MP3s and then you had an MP3s, but then sometimes you'd want to burn a CD for someone because you like made them a mix. Um, so you sometimes you need to go back to the legacy electronic money system. So, but yeah, so there's like 52 billion in circulation today. We've, we've grown a thousand percent year over year, two years straight. So it's been this huge growth and there's been over $2 trillion 
in transactions on these public blockchain networks where USDC can be used uh, as well. So obviously the contra- there's, there's like two controversies. One is that you're backed by real dollars. You're backed with, you're not just, you're, and there's, there's you and yeah. Tether. And there's always, there's been a lot of like, I think uh-huh. whether it's misinformation, people trying to put doubt in sure. that it's dollar for dollar. Like you just minted a, these coins, you're putting them out there. There's no backup. So basically mm-hmm. you're, there's right. some sort of thing going on here, right? which you're saying like that there is, there's assets backing these things. Yeah. Right I mean, now. just, just to be super clear, like, we're a regulated financial institution. We're regulated by like 40 some different banking regulators. And we had to go get licensed by these banking regulators. It took us three or four years to kind of get all those licenses. We had to get regulatory approval to launch USDC from these regulators. And the laws that we're regulated under are the exact same laws that regulate PayPal, Apple Pay, Cash App, Venmo, like all these things that we think of as digital money today um, are the same things that regulate USDC and the same regulators, in fact. And those those um, mediums, so if you have a balance with PayPal or you have a balance in, in Venmo or Cash App or whatever it would be, right, there are laws that say those companies have to hold 100% of the value. Unlike a bank where you have, if you have a Chase dollar or a Wells Fargo dollar, you don't actually have a dollar. You have an IOU on their lending book, and they're out there lending your money eight times over, and then you can demand it back. But if there's bad loans, like the bank could could not actually be able to 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 uh, meet that demand deposit, right? So the regulation around us is exactly the the same as these money transmission technologies. That's always been the case, and so we're examined, audited, accountable, all that kind of stuff. But we also kind of go above and beyond and disclose more details every month with like public attestations from a major global accounting firm to say, hey, we're looking at all these bank accounts. We're looking at all these funds. We're looking at all the records of everything that's been minted on the blockchain. And we're just saying, yes, this is accurate. That exists. It's there. Um, the, you know, so that's, that's the kind of basics there. By the way, I never had, does USDC stand for something? It yeah, it for? does. It stands for technically it's USD, like the currency code, USD coin. Uh, right. So that's, so that's I, that, what that is. Yeah. It's a little bit of a leading question because governments, obviously in China now, they've put out their own digital currency and they've kind of outlawed as much as they can crypto because they're trying to build some demand for their stuff. It seems like you're going to run head on with traditional fiat USD, <laughs> without the C. <laughs> and uh I'm wondering, you know, what what would what do you think they feel about that? How does the government feel yeah. that you're you're creating this thing? And I assume the U.S. government, obviously, Biden just came out and said there's going to be more stuff yeah. going on in our government, and they want to uh, evaluate a digital currency for dollars. Yeah. How does that how does that change what you do? You know, and and has there been any conflict with the government over that stuff or no? No, not no, not really. I mean, we've taken a very regulatory first approach in everything we've done for all of time. And, you know, in, in fact, the U.S. Treasury Department, which is actually the, the department that mints dollars, the Treasury Department, not the Fed, uh, although it's confusing for, for people uh, who, who creates the money. But um, like the actual notes and coins, uh, it's the Treasury Department. But the, yep. the electronic money dollars like that we use to kind of the, the Fed creates to buy debt off the market through quantitative easing, that's money printing. 
but that's like SQL databases uh, that the Fed runs. They just do SQL insert statements, there's some new records, we've got the new records, now we can go take those new records, transfer them into an account owned by a bank, and they'll give us these, these mortgage bonds or whatever. So like quantitative easing is, is our SQL operations as opposed to physical minting operations. But in, in any case, we've worked closely, and the U.S. Treasury Department, their top priority in this space is not how do we go launch a, a digital dollar, it's how do we put in place a regulatory framework around large-scale dollar stablecoin issuers like Circle and make sure that they work and are well-regulated within the financial infrastructure of the U.S. economy and of the global economy because they're growing so fast. And I think the important thing is to understand for people is every form of electronic money innovation that we have in the world today has been created by the private sector. And in many cases, you know, they end up being standards that private sector actors work on together. So the wire system that we use, if you send a wire, that's a consortium of private sector actors that defined a set of interoperability standards. You know, the check clearing system, that was a private sector innovation. The card networks, a private sector innovation. PayPal, Apple Pay, NFC payments, these are all private sector innovations. Stablecoins, private sector innovation. So generally in the West, the private sector leads in terms of technology innovation in money and has. And the government wants to make sure that they can project their monetary policy, they can set interest rates, they can kind of do some of these things. We don't change any of that. We just inherit from whatever that, that policy is. But we're like driving innovation at the fundamental kind of the form factor, as it were, like credit cards and debit cards were like the form factor of money. And then like tap to pay, that's a form factor of money. Stable coins are like a new form factor of money. So it's not really competitive with what the government does. Um, yes, there is talk of the government looking at, looking at doing some of this themselves. I think it's really unlikely that you'll see that as a model in the United States. Um, I think it goes so deeply against the division of government and private society you know, do we want there to be an air gap between our wallet and the government? Yes, we do. And that's enshrined in federal banking law, in fact. And I think that will continue to be enshrined in the world of internet money as well. China's a different story, right? China is trying to consolidate power, have a much deeper state surveillance system over all facets, your social credit system, your money system. And, and their digital currency effort is less a reaction to Bitcoin or crypto. It's a reaction to private power in the form of Alipay and Tencent. Alibaba and Tencent are too powerful. They imprisoned Jack Ma for months. And they basically said, we're going to have a, a way to do this that's not private. And we're going we're gonna to create an alternative. Now, interestingly, that's been out in the market. No one's using it because everyone doesn't trust. They don't trust the government. They trust, they'd rather have their money in, you know, Ali or Tencent, right? And it's more convenient because it's got more network effects. It's already adopted by a billion people. So it's, it's going to be very hard for them to get that off the ground because the, the, the society in China actually doesn't trust the government uh, in, in quite the same way. They've learned that they like these private innovations. Do you make money then your business models to make money when you mint a new one? Someone puts fiat in and you mint or what's the what's the overall business model? And then and then if we could just fast forward ahead 20 years from now or 10 years from now. Yeah. What does it all look like for you? You know, what I'm saying how did this all play out? Because there's a strategy beyond yeah. probably just, you know, stable coin. So yeah. where, where do you where do you see the yeah. business? What's the strategy and vision? 
Yeah, sure. So I, I think at a high level, we don't actually make money when, when USDC is minted or, or redeemed. We have several different revenue streams, though. So we have our stablecoin infrastructure, which is like USDC and, and operating that. We generate revenue from the reserves and managing the reserves. So $52 yeah. billion in reserves, you know, it's a rising interest rate environment. You know, we put out public guidance that will generate around $600 million of revenue this year um, and over $2 billion next year. And, and that's really just the growth of USDC is, 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 accounts for a huge piece of that. Um, we also sell, um, we, we, we open accounts for businesses. So a business can open an account and they can use it as a treasury and payment system and they can get in and out of digital currency, they can custody it, they manage accounts, they can pay for API services that allow them to kind of automate and integrate this. So that's what we call our transaction services. So that's more like SaaS utility-based scalable pricing. That's high growth for us. And then we have what we call our treasury services, which are basically like cash management. You take dollars, you put them in USDC and you lend them into lending markets where there's interest rates paid. So we pay around a five or 6% interest rate on USDC that you lend through us. And so that's another revenue stream. And I think um, so that, that's kind of what makes up the revenue today. And, and all three of those are growing really nicely. You know, a lot of this is public information because we're going public. And then, you know, in terms of the bigger kind of question, like how do we think about this over time? Um, you know, my, my view is um, that, you know, sort of the storage and transmission of value um, is just going to become a commodity-free service on the internet, just like the storage and transmission of information or communications. Like no one pays for for doing those things, and I think that you know blockchains and stablecoins and things like that are going to just make that possible. So that's really powerful, and I think that just like asynchronous text-based communication, like emerged on the public internet. And the amount of text communication in the world like went up a million X. Like it was just like way more communication than ever before. I actually think the amount of economic activity that happens is going to multiply massively when you take the cost of economic transactions down to zero. So that's that's I think important. But I think the bigger thing is like what I think of as you know capital markets or marketplaces for capital are going to go through some major transformations. And the internet's really good at, at creating these multi-sided marketplaces with, with like long tail access to those markets. Like the long tail of advertising was made possible through Google, the long tail of selling products and services, eBay and then Amazon and Alibaba, the long tail of content uh, through you know, a YouTube or Netflix or you know, basically this kind of, these long tail markets and much wider and much more global participation in markets. And that doesn't exist in capital markets today. Capital markets are inefficient. They tend to only be available to much more mature companies or households. I think what we think of as DeFi today, decentralized finance, finance yeah. is, is basically taking the building blocks of capital markets and turning those into public protocols on the internet that anyone can interact with. And I think those are just going to become more and more robust and are going to enable really, really dramatic new ways to form capital that and raise capital, to borrow capital, to lend capital at every level of society. 
and that that's going to create more velocity in terms of economic activity. So I think it'll be a net growth engine for like global economic activity. But it's in that transformation that I see a lot of opportunity for Circle, and 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 really helping you know people and businesses to to kind of take advantage of of what happens in that development of those new types of capital markets. So like practically, if like if people who are who are not on it yet, like right now I'm I'm lending out USDC yeah. to people who are trading in and out of cryptocurrencies and they want to trade right. from a volatile currency to stable. Yeah. Like and I'm getting six to eight percent interest rate right now, right. and I'm just a normal because there's no big banks providing liquidity. It's me. I'm right. the liquidity provider. Yeah. And right. DeFi the same thing. Like individuals working yeah. as a community become liquidity pools, yeah. and people are paying interest rates for those pools. Right. And there's no contract. And people realize there's no like yeah. physical contract. It's a digital contract. Yeah, you know, That's right. it's, it's got it's it's not this whole like rigmarole of going to a bank and lending money and getting a credit check. You're just kind of you're you're pledging your assets to borrow, which is cryptocurrency. You're borrowing, and then I'm lending you based on those assets that you're b- backing the borrow up with. Right, and that can get more and more sophisticated. And we have analogs in terms of like, you know, anyone can be part of the transportation system now. You just download the Uber app and you become a driver or a delivery person. Or anyone can be part of the travel and entertainment world. Like I can become an Airbnb host and I can do these things. Anyone will be able to be a capital provider. There are going to be people who can become underwriters who help vet interesting things and 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 kind of deal with information asymmetry issues. And and I think we'll see some really really sophisticated structures emerge that are not just people borrowing and lending for things like trading of crypto assets, but people who are supplying capital. That's capital that's needed by a household, or that's capital that's needed by someone harvesting their land in an emerging market or coming up with a, you know, a small business idea in some place in the world. And there's a price to the time value of money. And I think these protocols are going to really become convening mechanisms for that kind of economic value exchange. So that's, that's really where we see the opportunity. I, Paul Krugman wrote in an article in the New York Times how uh, this is all becoming the next predatory lending thing because he sees a lot of minorities and even women, higher amounts in crypto uh-huh. than in the stock market per se. This uh-huh. is like this is University of Chicago right. came out with this paper. We need to protect people. This is we need to protect people from uh, getting you know investing. Like that's why you know accredited investor status. Like you got to be rich if you want to be able to invest but, because you can't be smart enough. This is just complete bullshit. Right, but I th- I thought it was a little racist. I thought it was a little racist. It's, like it's racist and it's and it's classist. I've lost all respect for Paul Krugman. I used to have a lot of respect for him. I've lost all respect for Paul Krugman. Same with me, because I, I felt like instead of flipping around saying these normally this group of people don't get access because they're not accredited investors to high end rate returns. They're getting one percent in the bank or two percent now, and they're and they're not making the money on the lend. Well, this is like saying like we should all use Sears and J.C. because they have better buyers of products. We shouldn't have an open marketplace of products and services that are sold like Amazon, right? It's just these are like these decentralizing, democratizing forces, and I think that applied to capital is going to be really, really powerful. There are risks. I don't, I don't, I don't think like there's fraud, there's yeah. abuse, there's risk, there's so many fundamental things, but. The internet's also been really good at building these self-policing mechanisms. You know this from the world of, of communities, yeah, yeah. right? In the world of you know, ratings and reviews, it was like one early crude one. There's reputation systems. There's like, you know, now there's machine learning AI, as you know a ton about, that can be applied. Yeah, yeah. And so all these things will get applied to, to these problem spaces. And I always try to tell people that the U.S. dollar 
and the euro are used for more nefarious activities in the world than a digital currency like Bitcoin. I mean, more drugs and prostitution. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the head of financial crimes enforcement, you know, I, I testified next to her to the Senate and she said there's two trillion dollars a year of money laundering with with dollars today. And there's a, a tiny amount done with digital currency. And and in fact, the head of uh, the head of financial crimes research for I think it was Interpol you know, said that, you know, 98% of money laundering is in the banking system and goes it's undetected. In the banking system. But it, and it goes undetected. It's undetected. Well, Even though there's I don't know about, that. there was a big fine that one of the big banks, or three of the big banks got two years ago, that they were not using the proper KYC. And so terrorist drug dealers were using their in different locations around the world to sure. onboard fiat and sure. wash it. But these uh, are di- these so, are difficult yeah. issues, and 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 it's not to say that blockchain and digital currency is some panacea. Perfect, yeah. These are these are difficult issues, but I think the these kind of ad hominem attacks d- don't really stick. So so we're at the top of the hour, and I want to ask you a, a, like a really important entrepreneur question because that's a big part of the audience. Is you've pivoted a couple of times, like pretty major. And everything looks like a success, by the way, everything you've touched. Now, I don't know if there's some stories in between <laughs> Macromedia, Cold Fusion and, and Circle. No, it's always up and to the right. Always uh, up and to the right. <laughs> that's a, it always looks like you had a perfect run. I mean, first, I guess, ha, have you had any failures? Have you had anything totally. that you've built that's like totally like a zero? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think I mean, I've probably worked on now like 30 different products in the companies that I've built. And there's a lot of those products that weren't successful. I mean, that's just the reality. Like Alaire Forums, the product that you got started with, like we didn't really get, we didn't, we, we decided we couldn't win. Like there were, there were companies that were just going to focus on that. And, and so we said, okay, we, we, we can't win. Um, we can't focus on it. So we gave up on it. And, you know, that's just like one, one, one example. And, you know, with Brightcove, you know, my, my second company, right. We tried, we had like seven different product initiatives. We tried so many different things. We had an ad network. We had a content syndication network. We had a consumer portal. We had, you know, and, and, but we also had this really compelling platform that people wanted to pay for. And so we had successes and failures in, in there. And same with, same with circle. Like we've run multiple businesses over the years. We had a consumer app, that was actually quite popular and relatively successful. It just was burning a ton of capital. And then, you know, we went into crypto winter and it was like, shit, we can't just burn this capital. So we have to wind that down. We had launched USDC. We're like, that's where the future is. Let's go build behind that. We were in a trading business. Then the crypto winter happened. We had to sell the trading business. So lots of different, lots of different ups and downs. And, and there's a lot of stories in Circle where, you know, we were actually pretty close to bankruptcy at one point. And, you know, we just got really, really focused on, you know, the crown jewels and the product that we knew had the best product market fit and just got lean and just like got focused and we crushed it. And, you know, so that's there. And so there's a lot, a lot, a lot to the story, a lot behind the story for sure. So what, how do you get through it? You know, how do you get through it? Because you're making a bunch of tough decisions. Yeah. Like, how'd you get yeah. through it and not, not quit or what, like, how'd you do it? Like, what, what's your base? There's a philosophy you must have as yeah. an entrepreneur that keeps you like getting up in the morning. And not, not getting down, because I often say that for most entrepreneurs, that's why I like to do the show, is that they have to realize, like, we all, there's a suffering to it. There's a challenge to it. There is a suffering. And you have a choice, wake up, quit, or wake up, go yeah. forward. That's, that's the difference between making it or not, just a simple <laughs> don't quit. But yeah. what, how, do you, how do you do it? What's your basic philosophy of being an entrepreneur? Well, I think, like, to be an entrepreneur, like, 
you're constantly being told why you're wrong. You're constantly being told why what your idea is is stupid, why it's going to fail, why it's going to be, you know, all, I mean, it's like relentless until you have some measure of success. But even then, it's just everyone's telling you why you're not going to be successful. Investors are constantly saying, no, no, I don't buy it. I don't this, that, right? It's just like this endless, you know, rejection, um, <laughs> which is like, that, that's like, that's just true. It's just, it's just true. But, but I think like, you know, for me, like I, I have like super high conviction about what I see as becoming possible, the vision, the mission, what I see as becoming possible. And as long as I believe like we are still moving towards that and there's not something in the way that just makes it like totally impossible, then like I will keep going after that. And you have to be able to, to, to be sober and realistic as well, but it is that kind of core mission, vision, passion, what you're trying to build. Like that's what that keeps you going. There's a funny story though. I haven't told this, but you know, we were at a point where it was really hard. We had to jettison businesses. We were trying to like, you know, just get, you know, to a position where like our balance sheet was healthier. You know, it was like circle, circle or something before. Yeah. Yeah. Circle. Yeah. And it was a, it was a tough slog and, you know, and I think like there, you know, some voices around the table that are like, you know, just sell the company, this, this kind of thing or, or whatever, whatever that would be. And, and one of my investors, he happens to be from China and, and he flew, he flew here from Beijing and he came to my house and he's like, he wanted to sit down with my co-founder and I, and he's like, look, like you have the right vision. And what you're doing with USDC is like that, that, like that's going to happen. Like, you know, like that's going to happen. Like you have the right vision. You have to stick with this. Like you have to stick with it. And he's like, you haven't done anything hard yet. He's like, most entrepreneurs in China, they go to jail before they actually have their success. And then they get out of jail. But like, you haven't even gone to jail yet. I was like, all right. He's like, he's got a really good perspective here. Like, if great entrepreneurs in China have to go to jail before they like achieve their success, I, I, I think he's being somewhat facetious, but they're probably yeah, true. still, yeah, like it, it wasn't yet hard, right? It actually wasn't yet hard. And, and that was actually a really powerful like message to me. And yeah, you have to like go through the hard stuff yeah. and stick to, to like what you see, you really see it and go after it. So it's hard. Yeah. That, the reason I named the podcast over the walls, I said, like, I think whatever the energy or whoever you believe in that's out there above us, you know, like the world and how it operates, there's these walls that are put up, I think, to shake out the true believers. Like even yeah. at my size, we're half a billion in revenue and everything. There's always something you're trying to, you got to climb as long as you want to grow. If you yeah. don't want to grow, if you want to sit. And so yeah. I think everyone thinks, oh, you get to a certain scale, you got a bunch of people reporting to you. And there's all this, it's like, there is walls that you, because you're trying to get bigger and, and once you try to get bigger, there's a force out there that says, like, I don't know if you really want to get bigger. Is your heart yeah. into this anymore? Like, let me yeah. let me test right. your heart, right? Test your heart. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Jeremy, I want to thank you for being on the program. You've been a great guest. Awesome what you're doing. Good luck in joining the being a public company. It's my 22nd year. So I can tell you, it's a definitely, I've done 80-something quarterly calls. So welcome <laughs> to that world and analysts and everything. But but uh, really your success and, and all the things you've done in your life. And thank you for inventing something that helped me come up with my company's ideas. You're just, you're a great entrepreneurial force. I really appreciate that, Rob. It was really a privilege to be on, on the podcast with you too. Thanks. Have a great one. <laughs>